Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Make sure that you know the origins. Like mm-hmm. As long as they're saying, this is not something that Gwyneth Paltrow invented, but rather something that comes from Ayurvedic tradition. Are you suggesting that Gwyneth Paltrow did not invent turmeric right now? <gasps> I can't believe I said that out loud. We might need to cut the audio. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Point of Origin, a podcast about the world of food worldwide. From the makers of Whetstone Magazine, I'm your host, Stephen Satterfield. Over the past two years, I've had the tremendous fortune of making magazines and films about food, but more specifically about how it teaches us who we are and how we came to be. And for those who have had the privilege of moving about the world can attest, when we travel, it's hard to keep our minds fresh enough to avoid looking for familiar signals. Signs of home when you're far away from yours can be grounding, but In our exploration of global foodways, what we found is that enlightenment, despite your mind's best intentions, isn't found in the familiar because it's hard to imagine what we've not yet seen. And when we see, what is it that we see? Well, almost always in our purview is the processed and the packaged, the pre-wrapped and the manufactured. Point of Origin, the podcast and the notion is about deepening our understanding by going to the source. It's about learning to unlearn and relearn. It does not promise certainty, but that's okay because that's not what we're pursuing. And since we're just meeting, we wanted our inaugural episode to properly reflect who we are and the work we make. Without much difficulty, we identified preservation, both in a literal and cultural sense, as the best way to do that. Our work affirms our belief that women are the architects of preservation. So befitting of this theme, we begin today in India with three women, an entrepreneur, a food writer, and a journalist, all embodying in their work the essential nature of preservation. 
our first guest, the complete original, the essential, third generation Mumbiker, Sana Javeri Kadri. Sana is a dear friend of Whetstone. In addition to being a massive fan of her as a human being, we've also been the beneficiaries of her outstanding photography as the image of a fistful of her company's very first turmeric harvest graced the cover of our third volume of Whetstone. The spice importer, photographer, turmeric icon, Sana Javeri Kadri. And then by the time I took the photo, so much turmeric, because it's exclusively for turmeric, mm. so so much turmeric had been milled there that the walls have turned permanently yellow. And that's Sana. Hi, Hi. Sana. Hi. <laughs> I'm honored to be here. Before we get into Whetstone, let's learn about you. And I would like to know if you could tell us where you were born and how you arrived to where you are today in Oakland, California. Yeah. Um, so... I was born in Mumbai, India in 1993. India had just been neoliberalized in the early 90s. So right before I was born, my parents went to graduate school in Michigan. They went to Ann Arbor. Mm -hmm. And that was my mom's first international flight ever and ended up in the snow of Michigan. And, and did your parents grow up in Mumbai too? They did, yeah. Okay. So I actually have a, I'm a third generation Mumbaiker. 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 That's, okay. That's the new term. I mean, usually people would actually say I'm a third generation Bombay snob because <laughs> I live in like the southern crusty part of the city. Okay. Um, but yeah, third generation from Bombay. And they came to Ann Arbor and were basically like crunchy hippies. My dad had long hair and a beard. My mom um, was all about, I mean, I think discovered feminism for the first time. Mm -hmm. And they then moved out to Berkeley right after they graduated. When you talk about the neoliberalization of India in that period, can you say in more specific terms what was happening, what that dynamic Yeah, was? so basically India shortly after independence, became a protectionist state, which meant that very little of the outside world came in. So capitalism that was happening in the rest of the world didn't really touch India. There were no large brands. There was no multinational corporations. And then in the early 90s, uh, Narasimha Rao, I don't remember what his position was in the government, but he was responsible mm -hmm. and really opened up India. And so suddenly India became the world's, like, youngest democracy that also had like rising capitalism coming in. And so every brand was just like, let's get in there. As capitalism does. Yeah, as capitalism <laughs> loves to do. So I really feel like my childhood was like defined by Coca-Cola ads mm -hmm. um, because I saw them coming in for the first time trying to figure out the market as mm -hmm. a kid. And then by the time I got to my like early teens, they had really figured it out mm -hmm. um, and they were now marketing to India. So I know that I've always looked at my childhood and my life through this lens of consumption. I remember the summer that like Nestle bought up all of the airtime because before that, every family you went to for lunch had their own yogurt. And like everybody had homemade dahi. Dahi? Like yogurt, yeah. Um, uh -huh. Like I knew that my grandma on my dad's side was a bit wealthier because she used like full fat buffalo milk yogurt in her dahi. My grandma on my mom's side did not. She used, like, the skimmest shit. It was really runny. Um, but there was, like, all of these regional mm. differences between yogurt. And then Nestle bought up all this airtime. 
um, and I think it was the summer of my fourth grade, and convinced the middle class that if you weren't buying Nestle Dahi in a plastic Tetra pack and not like made at home in a like ceramic pot, you were choosing the less sanitary option. Mm -hmm. And so by the time school reopened in June, which is when our summer ends, everybody at home like would make this big show of peeling open their Nestle Dahi. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's how that was the lens through which I was looking through a lot of my childhood. But I have digressed so no, deeply. No, no. And no, let's say there. So was that, I mean, you were absorbing this this new phenomenon in the marketplace, the way you were being marketed to as a child. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a very common tactic with these corporations, the way in which they will shame indigenous foods or native foods totally. or foods of our ancestry and use this, let's just call it Western solution, this capitalistic solution, uh, which is about sanitation and cleanliness and purity. Yeah. So the, that dynamic is a familiar one we see over and over. Were you getting those messages? Were your parents kind of helping you process or make sense of this dynamic? Or were you sort of learning this all on your own? I think if I'm being honest, I was buying into it 100%. Mm -hmm. like, I remember multiple tantrums where I was like, we need Nestle Dahi at home. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're not going to be cool and the other stuff just tastes disgusting. Mm -hmm. It did not taste disgusting. Um, and I remember, I mean, especially my mom, her whole worldview has been about like, how do we support India from the grassroots? And she was like anti-Nestle from day one. Mm -hmm. Um, so we didn't exactly talk about how I got to the Bay Area. Yeah. So I graduated college. Mm -hmm. I broke up with my college boyfriend, who to this day is my be like best friend. I'm gonna be the best man in his wedding, mm -hmm. and followed a girl to the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. She was like, "Oh, I live here," and I was like, "Okay." And I mean, I had just started working at Byright. I loved the folks at Byright, but I was also sitting there being like, "My family gave me the best education ever." I was sent, you know, to Italy and then America, and now I'm photographing oranges. So you follow uh, a girl here, mm -hmm. and and Byright, uh, for people who don't know, the Bay Area is a very famous multi generational grocery store that's been around for about eighty years. Mm -hmm. I think best known for being uh, not just a champion but a massive purchaser of local food they have their own farm it's like the best produce i've eaten in my yeah, whole life some of the best. to this day yeah it's really really legit so it's a uh, it's not just like working at some grocery store if you're in the bay you say you work at buy right it's, it's like, like wow it's a thing ding 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 yeah yeah through that photography and also being embedded in the world of food did that start to give you some more clarity about what kind of work you wanted to make yeah i think in more the in what work i didn't want to make okay initially where i was like I love photography, but I really don't want to be taking photos of oranges, especially if I'm not telling deeper stories around it. Like someday I will tell the story about like the Sunkissed Empire here in the Inland, in the Inland Empire and, you know, the citrus history of America. But the food marketing aspect of it yeah. like was just falling really flat. And I realized that whilst I have photography as a tool, I'm really a supply chain nerd. Like what what I loved so much about Byright was understanding how 
they were changing supply chains from like the farm all the way to the consumer, what price points they were doing it at, whether there were some products that they could do at a lower price point. And when you say changing the supply chain, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Okay. So like a good example is chocolate, right? Chocolate for a long time was just a commodity thing that big companies grew and farmers got the cheapest price. They got the daily kind of almost like a stock market for chocolate. Yeah. Um, and then when the bean to bar chocolate movement came in, suddenly farmers in multiple chocolate growing countries now get much higher prices for it. We're able to negotiate higher prices because there was a demand for like what varietal of cacao is this? Like, when was it actually harvested? Was it from 2015 or 16? So suddenly understanding that it's not just bulk beans, but putting effort into what those beans are and where mm -hmm. they're coming from. And in doing that, making the supply chain more transparent, making it more equitable. And I was seeing that firsthand at Byright from everything from chocolate to produce to coffee, mm -hmm. but also seeing when it was an elitist product and when, or like a very expensive product that only very few people had access to. Which is basically everything in their store. Basically everything. Even with that 30% employee discount, I was still like, this is nuts. Yeah. Um, and when you could actually do something that could sit in Whole Foods and be in like the Whole 365 line. Right. You know, and, and I wasn't seeing very much of that. I wasn't seeing like transparent ethical stuff that was able to be a regular good and not a luxury good. Mm -hmm. And I was more just curious. I was like, is that possible? Can somebody do that? And I kept asking people, I mean, especially at Byright, I had access to all of these buyers, right? And I kept asking them like, okay, so rice. Okay, so spices. Okay, so lentils. Like everything I knew that came from India. I was like, where are you getting it from? How much do you pay them? How, how like, When did it get here? And nobody had answers for me. They would all kind of just look at me sheepishly and be like, it's made in India. We don't know. It must be great. Right. That must have been a really difficult thing to accept because they're so rigorous on the one hand. On everything else. Right. Yeah. When it comes to, honestly, when it came to like the ethnic food section, mm -hmm. anything goes. And that just felt like bullshit. It was like. It's yeah. 2016. Trump got elected. Here's the exotic corner of our... Yeah. If somebody's not changing this corner. It sounds like that's what led you to start Diaspora. I think so. No, I, I definitely think so. Okay. So what is Diaspora Co.? Diaspora Co. is a direct trade um, spice collective. Mm -hmm. And so we work between India and the U.S. And the idea is that we... So we work in collaboration with the Indian Institute of Spice Research. And they are really so far have been the folks like spearheading it for us where they work with farmers. Indian Institute of Spice, Spice Research. I-I-S-R. Okay. Um, Can I get like an honorary degree or something? Do they have... <laughs> I don't know if you want to. It's like a really sleepy institution that nobody has visited in 40 years. They looked at me and they were like, I think they had never seen somebody under the age of 25 like ever. They forgot. Yeah. They were just looking at me like, you have no wrinkles. Wow. What? How did you get hooked up with them? I harassed them for months. So you I, found them online? I found them on the internet. I emailed them. I called them. The head scientist was at lunch for four months. Um, he That's read a my WhatsApp. Job. <laughs> a four month lunch break. Sign he me up. read my WhatsApps repeatedly for months and like no response. And so finally, I bought a plane ticket and was like, excuse me. Hi, I'm wow. here now. 
Why did you have so much conviction that they were the people to start with? I visited a bunch of farms across India. So uh, because I grew up there, because my family's there, I think I have an ease of mobility there mm-hmm. that a lot of Indian Americans don't necessarily have. Mm-hmm. And I was visiting these farms and realizing that I was being screwed, where a lot of the time a farmer's cooperative actually means that like a rich trader realized that the European organic market likes it when the word cooperative is added on. Yeah. And so he's still paying the farmers nothing, but now he brings the like Italians and German buyers every year to trot around the farms to like right. meet farmers whose language they don't speak right. um, and take photos with like brown people. Yeah. And I was visiting these farms and realizing that where I was like actually talking to the farmers and they were saying, oh yeah, the commodity price for this is 35 rupees. This dude gives us 42. A seven rupee difference is like three cents. Yeah. Um, what language are you speaking? In? Uh, in this case, the nice thing is I speak Gujarati and most traders speak Gujarati. Mm-hmm. Like Gujaratis are the wiliest capitalists to ever, ever exist. And because of that, a lot of farmers have learned Gujarati in order to work with traders. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's why I was able Survival. to communicate with them because yeah. I don't speak any of the South Indian languages. Okay. Um, but Gujarati got me through. Perfect. And so when you met up with the Spice Doctors, <laughs> yes. after they got over the shock of saying <laughs> a 23 year old show up at their do- yeah. door, how did you guys go forward? I think they were honestly super stoked. I think the first thing they were like, Ma'am, Sana, we've been waiting for you for so long. Yeah. And I was just like, you're full of shit. Yeah. But I think they realized that for the past 26 years, they have been seed saving these beautiful heirloom seeds. Wow. And then licensing them out to farmers for either free or very little money, yeah. depending on the situation. And then the farmers have no market for it. So the farmers are growing these gorgeous seeds, but then they're selling it back on the commodity market. And they're mixing them all together. There's right, no which like loses the magic off it. Yeah. It's like selling a gorgeous like peak season cherry tomato to Walmart in the like shitty tomato section. Totally. And, and they didn't know how to access the market either. Like the niche urban organic market in India is so small mm-hmm. that a farmer sitting in Vijayawada, Andhra Pradesh, he has no chance of getting to that market. And so I think... This Dr. Prasad, the scientist, was really smart and being like, okay, this homegirl has the market. Mm -hmm. I have the farmers. If I matchmake, like my problem of not being able to market is solved by somebody else. So are you working with single varieties of turmeric? Yeah. So so my undergraduate thesis was on food and colonialism. And I, like, went down a six-month bender of, like, the ways that colonialism fucked up Indian agriculture. Mm. And that became, like, my deep life anger. I could talk for hours about it. And Mm. Dr. Prasad basically explained to me that the Indian spice trade has not changed since the 1850s because we take turmeric as an example. When I started looking, everybody said that Alibi turmeric was the best turmeric out there. And so I was like, okay, i got to find Alibi turmeric. And I was like, well, I'll go to Alipi. Alipi is a sleepy tourist town on the backwaters of Kerala, which is on the West Coast. Um, It's kind of like going to New Orleans looking for like a beautiful French farm because that's where the French like to party. Yeah. Um, So it makes Kind of the equivalent. It makes absolutely no sense. Um, But I showed up anyway. Everybody laughed me out of the town basically. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Um, What I understood is... 
the British, I mean, here's the power of naming, right? Where they mm -hmm. created these colonial brand names. So Saigon Cinnamon, Alipi Turmeric, Aleppo Pepper. Mm -hmm. Those are all colonial brand names. So Alipi Turmeric basically meant they took a shade card from light yellow to dark orange. Any turmeric varietal that met the bright middle orange shade card, they were like, that's, that's Alipi. And you get a premium price for it. Wow. So farmers literally lost their seed varietal understanding because they were growing for color and size. And so to this day, other than the ISR, there's no real understanding of seed varietals in spices mm -hmm. um, and in a lot of Indian agriculture. And what Dr. Prasad was literally challenging me, he totally baited me where he was like, you can basically turn it around and turn Indian like single varietal heirloom varietals into brand names and I was like okay I learned food marketing before but now it has a whole different meaning yeah. like the patriot in me was just rising and I was yeah. like okay I'll do it Dr. Yeah. Preseth so the thing the nerdy thing about turmeric is it's a rhizome and so it's like a genetic clone of the one that came before it it's very hard to come up with new varietals. I see. And so the varietal that we use is a varietal called Pragati, um, which means progress. I like that. Um, which I love. Yeah. And it's this really rich color. You've seen it. Yeah. Um, and what's really nice about it, it's a short duration crop, so it doesn't take a long time. And the farmers can then grow something nitrogen fixing in between rather than just leave the land fallow for a month and then regrow. And what do they put for the fixer? I think it's like a cousin of the fava bean. Yeah, fava is all. It's like a it's an Indian fava ish situation. Okay. Um, but then they also intercrop the turmeric with marigolds. Oh, it must be so beautiful. Which is stunning. Where you got to bust out your photography skills exactly, for that. It's like hi. So are you working? Are you anticipating new varieties coming to the market? Are you working? On yeah, there's there's another varietal called Pratiba mm -hmm. that's also um, a really beautiful varietal and has a higher curcumin content which is curcumin is like the anti-inflammatory good stuff that America chases, basically. It's um, like the woo-woo Gwyneth Paltrow stuff. You knew a new goop was going to come up. I can't not. It I just know. like bubbles out of me. So what bubbles out of you? How do you feel? <laughs> so goop now stocks our turmeric, which is hilarious to me. Yeah. <laughs> I like don't know how I feel about that because like in, on, in so much honesty, my rage at goop is what, started this company yeah but I, i've come to this point where i'm like you know what anybody can consume turmeric and do whatever they want with it as long as the right people are making money Very in this nice. case my farmers like yeah. you're making them money they're able to you know grow and live their best lives drink all the turmeric lattes you want yeah um but you've got to care enough to buy the right thing and in whetstone style like make sure that you know the origins like mm -hmm. as long as they're saying this is not something that Gwyneth Paltrow invented, but rather something that comes from Ayurvedic tradition. Are you suggesting that Gwyneth Paltrow did not invent turmeric right now? <gasps> I can't believe I said that out loud. Um, we might need to cut the interview. We've lost all credibility. <laughs> I do want to give you a chance to say whatever you want. I think what I did want to talk about was about the piece. Okay, that, let's like, talk about it. The Gujarati Muslim piece. Let's talk about it. So I showed it to my grandfather. Mm -hmm. Rather, my parents showed it to my grandfather. And he's the one from Ahmedabad. And he grew up Muslim in Ahmedabad. And I think when he moved to Mumbai, he 
kind of deleted the idea that his culture would be represented. Mm -hmm. I think for him, the gamble on moving to Mumbai was my career will grow and I'll visit where I come from every now and then, but I'll keep my head down, not really advertise my Muslimness, not really advertise where I come from. Mm -hmm. And I think it was kind of wild and emotional. He's not an emotional dude. If you think my dad is a chiller, this dude like has a nap for two hours every day maybe for the whole 85 years that he wow. was alive. Um, That's like uh, on some four-month lunch territory. <laughs> you know, men in India, they really have it made for them. <laughs> Sounds like it. But I think it really, he got really emotional because two generations later, like his granddaughter was able to go back and like proudly document a culture mm-hmm. that he never thought was documentable. These images are phenomenal. Thank so you. So we drop into... This story about Gujarati Muslim food. We're obviously talking about... uh, A region and a religion. Exactly. So what are the implications of the region and religion being discussed? So Muslims have always had a very tenuous relationship in India, obviously, since partition. But especially so in Gujarat. In Gujarat, I mean, most recently in 2002, there was a huge genocide that the current prime minister was um, sort of party to. Mm -hmm. To this date, like should be convicted for. And so the Muslim footprint in Gujarat just gets smaller and smaller. Like over the years of going back, what I've just witnessed is our neighborhood gets tighter and tighter and tighter and it stays further and further back in time while the rest of the city develops. Like this neighborhood still feels like pretty much the neighborhood my grandfather grew up in Mm -hmm. when the rest of Gujarat is meant to be like, the bastion of like Indian development, da da da, big highways. And it's not a culture that's talked about because Gujaratis, like I said, like best capitalists, Gujarati Jans usually have the ability to emigrate, have the ability to leave. No. Gujarati Muslims stay because they're never going to gain the means to leave. Mm-hmm. And especially as Muslims, like which country is going to take them? Right. And so that culture hasn't been documented. And every time I went back, it would feel super like walking the streets behind our house where the samosas and the biryani and a lot of the meat essentially is prepared always felt really precious because mm-hmm. I didn't see it anywhere else. And I mean, these photos, I haven't seen these photos anywhere else. Yeah. They're truly remarkable. Thank uh, you. Thank you for all that you do, all that you've done, are doing. Thanks for having me. Next, Amrita Gupta is a journalist and podcast producer from Bangalore who has been writing about food and the food system in India for 10 years. So Amrita, you went to Goa and met a group of fishermen who, to say the least, are facing an uncertain future. Can you give us an example of what they're up against? Yeah, so one of the fishermen I spoke to broke down the math for me of why they often don't break even anymore. Suppose you had a boat, he said and you employed 25 people, and you have to pay for fuel and for food and for ice, and so you hope you'll recover your costs. But the boat goes out and looks and looks, and sometimes they don't find any fish. So what do you do? What exactly are they fishing for, and how are they fishing? Yeah, so many of these purse sign trawlers target surface schooling fish, like mackerel. And the method that they're using is rightfully controversial, for reasons you'll hear. But according to one boat owner, they can bring in around 15 tons in a few days out fishing. 
Wow, it's quite a lot. Yeah, so this trawler was out for a week. It had 35 people on it. And it brought in only three tons of mackerel. This is a high-speed boat. It damages a lot of fish, he says. Nearly 10, 15 tons, he says, comes as damaged. So the boat owner was pretty open about the fact that it's a high-speed boat and it damages a lot of fish and brings in a lot of scrap or juvenile fish. And if they didn't use high-speed boats, he said that a greater number of fish could survive and grow up to become bigger fish. He feels that the industry would be better off if they had fewer boats or smaller boats. But that isn't what the government's encouraging. So before we look into exactly what it is the government's encouraging, for context, let's get some background on how Indian fisheries evolved. For some perspective, we speak with Divya Karnad, a marine conservationist who grew up on the Indian coast and spends her adulthood protecting it. So uh, initially we had very few fishermen who were fishing at whatever rates using traditional old forms of fishing gear. And then over the years that has changed both due to the increase in the number of people fishing as well as changes in the fishing technology. Once trawl fishing became a very important form of fishing in India like in the 1980s and 1990s, while that was still booming, uh, people could afford to, you know, choose the fish that were really of high economic value and then discard whatever else was of low economic value. This is because trawl fishing is an indiscriminate form of fishing. So you can't really select which species or which size of fish or so on gets caught in the net. And particularly because we were using bottom trawling, which is where the net scrapes the seabed in the nearshore areas and most of our fish actually come to breed in the nearshore areas and many of them, uh, many of the young juveniles and so on hang out near the seabed. So as a result of this, all these uh, juveniles and young uh, of the fish as well as other species like clams and mussels and all these little animals that live uh, towards the bottom of the sea were all getting caught in the nets and they don't really have a very good uh, economic value as seafood, so they were being discarded. But uh, once the trawl fisheries stopped being economically profitable, so once we went to a point where the seas were being overfished, then people realized that they were actually throwing out more of their cash than they were actually keeping and selling. So they had to try to find new markets for these uh, uh, this huge quantity of catch that they were discarding and they realized that there was this possibility of using it for animal feed. Feed. Now we're moving into the crux of the story. Current industrial fishing practices undermine the livelihoods of coastal communities and the welfare of the ocean. A lot of what's landed today doesn't feed its citizens. It feeds other animals. And this is a system that's bolstered by government subsidies. Divya told me about one study from the state of Tamil Nadu, which showed the link between fish meal and poultry farms. People were more dependent on income from fish meal than the actual seafood that they were catching. Our oil sardines get targeted like that in India. On the west coast, you'll find a lot of sardine processing facilities. The oil's extracted and then the meat's made into fish meal. And sardines have long been an important source of food for fishing communities themselves. 
Aaron Lobo is a marine conservationist in Goa. He told me that overfishing and trawling in particular has resulted in less high-value fish in just a few decades. And since the poultry industry buys higher volumes of lesser quality fish, it isn't exactly the same. Many of us think that the demand for animal feed is what's driving declining catches. But Aaron says it's more complicated than that. So the whole thing of the, the poultry industry and animal feed is one thing, but they're doing it because they're adapting to, you know, a, 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 a dire time in a way, you know what I'm saying? So they're... The, the industry is. The industry is doing, like, for example, landing low-value catch for the poultry industry. That's The market is just one driver, but the main driver is declining catch. The things which we used to discard, we don't discard them anymore. That's Mayuresh Gangal, a marine researcher. If you land them, then uh, of course our landing would look uh, bigger. In many parts of India, including Goa, they're fishing down the food chain. Landing more trash fish, which is to say not for human consumption, but for fish meal. And that's why when we see statistics on fish landings, we need to remember they're not telling us the full story. The highest value things would be things like, you know, tiger shrimp that you can see here, uh, lobster, which is, so they're so... Like tiger shrimp and lobster are really uh, lottery catches, you know, so uh, their catches have really sort of declined. But while they have declined, you can imagine some of the higher trophic um, uh, species like the grouper, snapper, etc. They have really sort of uh, taken a a dip, you know what I'm saying? Like we're not seeing any, like I don't see You're seeing snapper, you're seeing a lot of uh, mangrove jack, you're seeing red snapper. But, uh, you know, what you're seeing is basically probably a lot of effort that's put in to catch that fish, you know. Probably at one point of time you could say one trawler brought in like, you know, four or five. But now probably it's ten trawlers that have brought in those four or five species. So coming to a fish market can be very misleading, you know. It's safe to assume that the fish uh, harvest is not sustainable at the moment. And um, the idea is to uh, go towards sustainability. What the stats show is just the catch. They're not looking at how much effort people are putting in to get that catch. What ecologists like Divya Karnad and Aaron Lobo are talking about is that given the effort that's put in, the catch is actually reducing. We see people going out for longer and fishing deeper, and each time the industry is growing less viable. And no one is more aware of this than the fishermen themselves. Now, I have been working with fishermen uh, for quite a long time now, and it's been um, interesting to like go to them and see the kind of innovations that they are doing and the kind of concern that they have for the environment. And to think about how, as ecologists or conservationists, we are constantly thinking that the problem lies with the people who are harvesting it. Yeah, so we are taught to, you know, go to the fishing villages and do these sort of uh, conservation outreach campaigns or education or awareness or whatever it is. When, in fact, these people are already making the change and they are already concerned about the environment and they want to do something, but they feel like they are tied down by the supply chain. So, Amrita, this sounds like a pretty dire situation. We have fishermen who are increasingly having a difficult time selling what they catch, and what they do catch is inferior quality fish. The cost of the boats are really high, and when they go out, they're spending more and more time on the water. 
more fuel, which of course means more money. But this issue isn't just something that's confronting fishermen in India. It seems the industry worldwide is destined to fail. Is there any reason for optimism at all or anything that can be done? What I learned while working on the story is that India is willing to pay more for its fish domestically than the price it would fetch if it was exported. So most of the consumption is actually within the country. And that's why many researchers in the field believe that a change in seafood eating habits within the country will help address the problem. Because if you look at restaurants right now, they may be serving six or seven species of fish, uh, but that's about it. In fact, there are over 100 species that are edible. I see. So can we then apply the adage that we must eat what we want to save? Is that applicable here? That's the framework we use when we're talking about conserving heritage meats, right? But I think that what the crux of it is in this context is that we need to be more aware of seasonality in fish breeding, which stocks are overexploited, uh, which fishing methods are more destructive. We need to diversify our seafood diets so that there's less pressure on just a few species. Mm-hmm. But consumers who vote with their fork can only do so much. They can't address the structural aspects like um, industrial fishing subsidies. So while they definitely can choose more sustainable seafood, I'm not sure if we can frame it as a fix, you know? Right. Yeah, in- individual consumers alone aren't going to be able to solve for this. Okay, so that means that we have work to do as consumers, um, but that work is not adequate. We will also need to push for policy changes and really a reframing of the way that we think about the role of government in our food systems. In this case, we see a government not only in India, but all over the world that subsidizes greater volumes uh, at the expense of sustainability. Uh, Thanks a lot, Amrita. Uh, Thanks, Stephen. Amrita Gupta is the founder of the Food Radio Project. To see more of her work, go to foodradioproject.com. Before our next story, a quick programming note here that we actually have produced a short film about this very topic. And if you've not yet seen it, particularly after listening to this story, please do search The Anchovy Project to see how this very dynamic is playing out in our home state of California. Our next interview is with the food writer and author of the newly released cookbook, Indianish Recipes and Antics from a Modern American Family. Priya Krishna. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We're back with more Point of Origin. I want to start off by asking how the hell you are so prolific because every day <laughs> I'm on the internet reading food articles and every day I see your name pop up for a different publication with an incredibly rich story and I'm wanting to know how you are able to write so much. I feel like lately that has not been the case. I feel like I've been slacking. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know. I, I get eight. I get good sleep i treat my work days like they are work days like i don't do a lot of like midday lunches or breakfasts mm -hmm. like i feel like that always messes up my day i just like try to be highly efficient with my time and i do work on planes which i realized like a lot of people can't do work on planes i thrive doing work on planes which it's I, feel like is, I feel like that's like the best time for me to get mm -hmm. my shit done either way kudos to you uh such a pleasure to see so much of your work in the world and uh the most meaningful work to date indianish will be hitting shelves nationwide how are you feeling i don't know i feel equal parts excited and anxious like you just this book is like one of the most vulnerable things I feel that I've ever done as a writer. Like it's 300 pages of just like straight up honesty, like the good and the bad. And you're kind of putting yourself out there and hoping that people like it. And it's almost, it's like this very weird feeling in that like, okay, if people don't like these recipes, like this is what I grew up with. It's like saying you don't like me, which I mean, obviously is probably not true, but it's still, it's still like kind of a mind fuck this whole process. I mean, did you have any sense of how deeply personal this would be in advance of beginning? Or was it only once you started the process, did you realize that you were really opening yourself up? I mean, I've written about my family a lot. And so I didn't expect it to be any to feel any different writing a whole book about them that it but it really did. Like, I think like seeing the manuscript and it being sort of like 400 pages of my family brought to life in a book form felt like a unique level of exposure. Like my personal stories on my family are like, you know, usually 800 to a thousand words. It's just, it's focusing on a story, a moment, but this is almost like all of those moments come together with recipes. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and yeah, that was, that was scary. It was a lot scarier than I thought it would be putting that all down. Yeah. And the recipes are of course a composition of your childhood and your youth in Texas, but also your ancestry from India. Um, can you tell us about what your experience was like growing up in Texas? I mean, I had a, I had a lovely childhood, but it was like, I mean, it was hard in the way that like being a kid of color in the nineties and early two thousands was like, you know, everyone on TV was white. All of like the, the major YA novels written for kids our age featured characters who were white, Mm -hmm. just constantly feeling like I didn't fit in just like desperately. I like desperately wanted to have like straight brown hair and be Jewish because that was who most of the people that was like the look of most of the girls Mm. in my grade and I kind of like tried to downplay my Indian heritage as much as possible I really I did classical Indian dance I had a big Indian family but I kept my life with my friends at school and my home life and my culture really compartmentalized Mm -hmm. which as you say is once you get older Uh, you realize quite a common kind of assimilation or coping mechanism for young people of color. Yeah. And like, it, it sucks because like you grew up, you were, you were born and raised in the U S just like everyone else, but you're still made to feel like somehow you don't belong. Mm -hmm. And is that kind of exacerbated at all in Texas, given all of the overwhelming and prevailing narratives about like, the state of Texas and everything that that represents. It's funny. People ask me that all the time. I grew up in a liberal bubble. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah, my school was the school that people who weren't Republicans sent their kids to. It was Mm -hmm. super, super liberal, really open. It like, but it almost made it, I mean, it would have been shitty feature, like experiencing like overt racism, but it was like, the discrimination was more subtle. Like it wasn't explicitly racist. It was more of a subconscious bias. And it like almost hurts more because you're like, I can't pinpoint why I'm being excluded, but I am. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that from a culinary perspective. Obviously you had segregated your own worlds and your own lives, but what was it like when the two worlds collided around the table? What are some of your earliest memories of those convergences? You mean like my mom sort of coming up with more hybridized dishes? Is that what you mean? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. It sort of just, it just happened naturally. It wasn't something that I think was conscious. Like my mom was dealing with, you know, having two American, very American kids who are a product of American culture and she herself was living in the U S so it, yeah, it, it sort of came very organically. Like my sister and I kept demanding pizza and my mom was so annoyed and didn't want to make pizza. And so she decided to make pizza using roti mm-hmm. and, you know, my mom would travel to London and she would eat baked potatoes in pubs and loved the idea of like a baked potato soft top with sour cream. So she made a version with sour cream and chaat masala and onions and cilantro or We went to California and we ate California sourdough and thought it was the greatest thing ever. So we made these like Indian-ish, like these like grilled cheese sandwiches with stuff with yogurt and cilantro and onions and topped with curry leaves and mustard seeds. And we used sourdough bread because the tang was so such a beautiful marriage with like the intensity of the curry leaves. 
So it was just, it was just things like that. We were discovering new ingredients and new, new dishes. And my mom was really curious. And so was I. And so that we kind of did everything, but did it our way to our tastes with what we had in the pantry. Mm -hmm. And your mom, uh, we discover in the book is kind of a superhero. Yeah. (laughs) A tremendous woman. Can you uh, tell us more about your mother? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I feel like su- superhero is a total understatement. Right. Um, we need yeah, new language. My mom not only is an amazing cook, which, you know, I feel like a lot of a lot of mothers are amazing cooks, but she was an amazing cook while also being a like high powered executive for a software company, which she still is. She uh, has a hiking group where she like literally hiked Machu Picchu with no training. She co-founded a film festival that showcases works by South Asians. She knows a lot about wine. She's an amazing hostess. She is really put together, has great taste, loves theater and art and travel. She's just kind of this amazing Renaissance woman. And and most importantly, like she was an amazing mom. Mm -hmm. She taught me that you don't need to be a mother who's always around like you by being super ambitious and I think by leaning into her interests and her work she sort of led by example for my sister and I and we didn't really we didn't need her to be around 24 7 to know that she was an amazing mom because she was sort of showing us you know what it means to do it all and I think as I've gotten older and sort of contended with balancing various things in my life, I've come to appreciate that more than more and more. Right. And I think actually I'm now realizing what a foolish initial question I had in asking how you managed to be so accomplished and prolific as a writer. Clearly, you are your mother's daughter. That so. is very nice. I definitely am not. I'm like, I would say I'm like 10% of the person <laughs> mother is. It's like one of those fundraising <laughs> thermometers i'm just trying to work my way up to maybe be like 50 percent of the way there (laughs) no you got plenty of time do you see your work as um as a calling or as a way to honor that maternal relationship i don't know if i explicitly see it as a way to honor that maternal relationship but it's also like the only way my mom taught me to be Mm -hmm. you know to have work-life balance to hustle really hard to not take no for an answer you know, to set extremely high goals for yourself and then do everything you can to achieve them. You know, I entered this industry with zero connections just by sending like 60 cold emails and hoping that people would respond. I feel like that's kind of how my mom broke into her industry too. She kind of had to like elbow her way in, but she did and she's super successful. Mm -hmm. All right, let's transition a bit. I want to talk about your one of your recent New York Times articles about yogurt. And it seems like, at least in our little corner of the food world, this was a pretty widely circulated uh, article because the condensed version of the story is that your your family has had a starter, a yogurt starter that is almost as old as you are or maybe older. It's, it's older than Older I than am. you are, which is just really in a a world of fast food and prepackaged consumption really boggles the mind. So can you tell us not only about your, your own family's relationship to this yogurt and starter, um, but also uh, Indian sort of culinary culture uh, at large? Yeah, I mean, I always thought it was somewhat unique that my family 
had this yogurt culture growing up and that we kind of just perpetuated the same yogurt starter. And I was excited to find out that, no, we were not unique and there were a number of families that did this. But it's it's very common in Indian culture to make homemade yogurt, I've learned. You know, yogurt is such a fundamental part of Indian cuisine, which is, you know, so divided across regional lines. But yogurt is sort of this through line that you'll find you know, in cuisines from the north, south, east to west. And so it was so amazing, like hearing all of these stories and sort of understanding how, you know, when people immigrated to other countries, the way that they stayed connected to their Indian heritage very often was by transporting this yogurt culture from India and then perpetuating it in the U.S. Like I heard all these romantic stories about smuggling yogurt culture through customs and dipping it in the folds of your sari, like, you know, I just thought it was so beautiful. And to me, my dad's yogurt, that's as good of a taste of home as any. And, you know, I, (laughs) I hope that eventually I'm, I get to perpetuate that yogurt culture for my kids. It's sort of a way of passing down a family legacy. And I just found that so special that there are so many families who had that shared experience. Oh, I mean, it's so beautiful. It's a it's a living heirloom. I, I mean, it's so beautiful. Did you uh, get any like love letters um, from different corners of the world or people saying, oh, this is how uh, we do it or this is an application? Yeah, I did. Actually, um, I got I got a lot of notes after that article came out. I mean, even more interesting was when the article was being written, I was sort of curious to see if my experience matched with other people's experiences. So I put out a call on Instagram and I was like overwhelmed with the response of people with amazing stories of their family's yogurt culture. And then once the article came out, even more people emailed me being like, this really speaks to this speaks to my experience growing up. And I mean, that was so powerful to me that, you know, all of us South Asian kids, you know, our parents, sort of all valued the same thing and I think you're totally right like it is this living breathing heirloom and it's something that you know can transcend generation and transcend time and and it's a food it's just you know I feel like there are very few foods that are capable of of doing that totally yeah so my last question for you is really just a a big picture question but it's about just kind of how you view um, the work that you're making in the world right now when when you talk about your work or when you think about your work is there kind of a prevailing thing that you are hoping that people take away from it or is it that you just people will take whatever they will take from it and and you just keep producing it my beginnings as a food writer kind of coincided with the 2016 election. And I, you know, at first I didn't want to be defined by writing about a certain thing, but you know what? I, I really do feel like I've tried earnestly to focus my writing on the communities that I feel are underrepresented in food media, people who are, you know, making change in the food world, but you know, haven't been written about. And I guess that, to, to me, that means people from cities that don't get covered often, women, immigrants, communities of color, members of the LGBTQ community. I just feel like it's really important that we normalize a more sort of inclusive world of food writing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like whatever small part I can play in that, I'm happy to. Amen to that, to all that. And, I mean, and, and the truth is, these are the stories I'm most interested in. Like mm-hmm. as a kid of immigrants, like, 
I feel like it makes sense that I'm interested in, in stories that, that relate to people who are underrepresented. So Mm -hmm. it feels very natural to me. (laughs) Yeah. And yet, uh, so far away from your experience, uh, and growing up and consuming media that not at all reflected your culture. So it's really beautiful that, um, we're in a moment in which we can hear from more people, but for you in particular, I'm sure it just must be particularly thrilling, um, that you are creating part of this new, new paradigm. You're very much a part of that. I feel privileged to be a bit, honestly. Yeah. Well, um, that's Priya Krishna, food writer and author of Indianish Recipes and Antics from a Modern American Family. I loved our conversation today, Priya. Thanks for talking to us. Of course. Thanks for having me on. All right. See you soon. The tale of two yogurts and the fight to protect Goa's fishing villages and waters. It's all about preservation. It keeps us alive and teaches us how to live. It feels really important to tell you that origins are not definitive. Though it is language we use to describe our work, it is in no way comprehensive. The same is true of food anthropology, another way we describe our work. And though the language we have is inadequate, to look at food in terms of the study of past and present, well, that part of food anthropology, that feels like the right way to think about our food. And so ultimately, that's how we talk about our work. The study of food is always past and present. We'd like to thank our guest today, Amrita Gupta of the Food Radio Project, Sana Javeri Kadri of Diaspora Co., and Priya Krishna, author of Indianish, for joining us today. Special thanks to Kat Hong and Adam Lampert in Los Angeles, California for your editing and production support and to Roast and Post Studios in Oakland, California for engineering this podcast. Point of Origin is a podcast from iHeartMedia and Whetstone Magazine, executive produced by Christopher Hasiotis and hosted by me, Stephen Satterfield. And a very special thanks to my business partner, Whetstone co-founder, Melissa Shi, who helped produce this podcast. Thanks, Mel. You can listen to more Point of Origin on the iHeartMedia app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to our very first edition of Point of Origin. We hope you enjoyed it. In our next episode, we pay homage to a country that puts the ice in ice cream and in the land. I'm talking about Iceland, y'all. And in our next episode, we meet a chef turned geothermal salt maker and a farmer who's making an extremely regionally specific dairy product. Icelandic foodways of yesterday and today, next time on Point of Origin podcast. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.